Amen. Remain standing. Don't sit, don't sit yet. And I just want to invite us. Will you just raise a victorious hand in the air as you hear the word of God declare this, that I am and we are convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. There is no power in the sky above or on the earth below. There is nothing in all of creation that can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the whole church said, Amen. Amen. Can we put our hands together and thank God for all he has done? Thank you very much. Thank you. And I also want to welcome all of you to Sycamore View today. For... Members here have been here over a decade. This is our 11th Easter to spend as a family with the Sycamore View Church. I want to welcome the guests who are here. I want to welcome those who are joining us on live stream. We're so glad you have joined us today. You've heard me, if you've been here very long, the last few months you've heard me share a few stories that Casey, from my trip last October, November, Casey and I got to travel to Israel and tour the Holy Lands and especially the last week of the life of Jesus will never be the same for us again. Just every story we read in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of the last week of the life of Jesus, we have a visual for it and an understanding of how Jerusalem was set up. Uh, there was one morning, the last full day of our trip, that we went to the garden tomb. Now today, there are two, kind of, two sites that people think these were the two main traditional sites where the crucifixion and the burial happened in one of these two places. So we were able to see both of them. The garden tomb is where he went the last week. Now those who don't believe this is where the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus happened still believe that the way the garden tomb is set up, that that's what it would have felt like and been like when Jesus died. So we went to the garden tomb one morning, and we had uh, 80 people in our group. My parents were leading a group, and they had around 35 in their group, maybe 37. We had a group of about 40. Now, if you think you've ever been a chaperone for a group of 40 or even five kindergartners, try taking 40 adults anywhere, all right? It's hard to hurt. <laughs> it's like a bunch of livestock you're just trying to hold together. But... <clears throat> So we had two groups, and most places we would go to the same place, but they had one group with the tour guide, and we had another group with the tour guide, and rarely did our groups meet up during the day. We would eat dinner together at night, and if, when you're on a tour, like you're not supposed to, like they tell you, don't leave your group. You could get lost. But when it came to the garden tomb, our group, and it's a single foul line, if you go inside of this tomb, which some believe is the tomb that Jesus was laid in, if, if not, it would have been what it was like. And there's only one way in and one way out. So you're in a single file line and one group or one person or a family will go in and then they come out. Now you're not supposed to take photos or videos. There's rules against this. Now I'm not going to name the names of the people in our group who did that. They may be sitting like in a section right over here somewhere. But there are people who did take some photos and videos. But Casey and I went in. And when you go in, you're just overwhelmed with emotion. And my mom, who was in another group left her group, which she wasn't supposed to do, but she said of everything I wanted my son and Casey to see in Israel, this is the side I wanted to be with them when they were there. Because resurrection and the tomb is empty is this rallying cry for so many of us, especially my family. And so my mom left her group. So when Casey and I walk out of the tomb, there's my mom 
When you go to that first picture right here, and I love this, somebody shot a picture over my mom's shoulder of her who's overcome with emotion, waiting for Casey and I to walk out of the tomb. So my mother is there, and I think it's so cool, she's wearing her Jenny's Hope t-shirt as she's standing there waiting on us. So then Casey and I come out. If you go to the next picture, we come out, and Casey doesn't want me to show a, a, a tighter view of what her face was like, because Casey was experiencing all kind of emotion. She had just cried. She was also joyful, and then... And and then somebody's like, hey, stop right there, stop right there. We want to get a picture. So right here in this moment, my mother has her arms wide open, ready to hug her baby. And as I leave there to go hug my mom and to hold her, Casey beats me to it. Like she, she jumps in front of me. And, and it wasn't just a hug they were having. It was this long hold and they're crying and I'm sitting back and I'm like, there was a part of me that was like, she's not your mom. She's my mom. Like, <laughs> like. Move out of the way. I want to hug my mom. So I end up hugging our tour guide, Jack, over here. <laughs> right, <'cause, laughs> I'm going to talk about Jack more in a minute because Jack was also overcome by emotion. And he left a group to come be with my mom to see us. So I just give Jack a big hug. And Jack was not a very affectionate man, but I grab him, all right? And then if you go to the next picture, I think my mom asked us to pose just for a moment. There was a little worship place over to the side. So we had a few of these moments together as a group where places we would go, we would, there was, they, they would have a little place with benches where you could sit down and have a worship experience with whoever your group was. So I got to preach at the place called the Mount of Beatitudes, the place where they believe was a, where the, Mount of, uh, the Sermon on the Mount was given. And the Beatitudes were offered from Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And here at the Garden Tomb, there was a place that could hold around 100 people. So we went and we sat in there and we took communion together and we sang songs like in Christ alone and it is well with my soul. And I, and I knew I was about to preach at the garden tomb. But as we're singing songs, I was so overcome with emotion. Like it was not just the little lump in the throat. I mean, it was, I could not speak. So I stand up in front of the group and I, I couldn't get a word out for a few moments. Just so overcome with, okay, this has become more real to me than ever before. That what Jesus has accomplished, this changes everything. And, and at first, the only thing I could get out of myself was, this is our story. This is it. If it wasn't right there in that site, somewhere within like a mile radius of where we were standing is where this event happened. Where Jesus died, he was placed in a tomb, where he came back to life for us. This was a place where evil thought, evil had taken out Jesus, but little did evil know that God's plan was for three days later for evil to be taken out. This is where it was launched. This is where the story happens. This is why we celebrate Easter Sunday. Now, for most of us, when it comes to a funeral, to, um, at the end of someone's life, we want to think about and celebrate the victories and the successes, not the failures. And if we do talk about the failures, and I've done countless funerals, if I do talk about any failure, it's usually in the context of some testimony. If here's something this person struggled with in their life, and here's how they overcome it, or here's how, here's, here's how they were trying to overcome it. So at the end of someone's life, we usually try to focus on the highlights and the victories. But when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it, you get about halfway through all those Gospels, and it takes a turn to where it's not focusing on the victories of Jesus' ministry and his miracles and his teachings and the people he, he drove demons out of. It takes a turn to, to the cross, to suffering, to crucifixion, to death. Let me just walk you through. We've been in the Gospel of Mark for a few weeks now. We were in the Gospel of Mark for a few months last fall. 
And just a few places in the Gospel of Mark, and let's go through these just for a moment. The first one I just want you to, to focus on Golgotha. That when we read the crucifixion story in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark, one of the key themes of Mark is that Jesus is the suffering Messiah. He's not the Messiah who comes to declare victory without suffering. He's a suffering Messiah. Golgotha was the place of the school. This is where the Romans in every province would set up execution sites that weren't to be done in private where no one could see it. It was to be done in public where everyone could see it. It was a way for Rome to let you know that if you mess with Rome or you claim to be king or you commit treason, then, then here's what will happen to you. You will be crucified in public where other people can see you on the highest place so that this is, it's complete humiliation is what it was. So even if you read in Mark chapter 15, at one point it says that as people pass by, they mock Jesus. It was close to a busy road where people could walk in and out of, they would see it. There's, there's Golgotha. There's also darkness that you read about. That after Jesus had been on the cross for three hours, it says darkness came over the land. And either this was darkness because God performed a miracle and the sun set, or, or God provided so many thick clouds that darkness came over the land. Throughout the Bible, not every time, but most of the time, when darkness shows up, it's a sign of God's judgment. And think about it. This would have been a time when Jesus is on the cross that it would have been nice to have a little beam of light that could provide a little hope. But instead, for the last three hours Jesus was on the cross, it was darkness. So as the S-U-N set over the land, the light set in Jesus' own life. And, and on the cross, two different times in the crucifixion story, you read about wine being offered to Jesus. So in the Gospel of Mark, there are two of these. One is in verse 23, that they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And I've used this sometimes working with people who are alcoholics. That there was a time, and when you read about Jesus drinking wine with his friends, it wasn't grape juice, all right? Uh, but Jesus never, you never read about Jesus being drunk, but the time in Jesus' life when he was offered wine and he could have taken it to numb pain in his life, he refused it. He didn't take it. And when he's on a cross, right before he breathes his last breath in verse 36, it says someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, offered it to Jesus to drink, and then said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. And the very next verse is Jesus breathes his last. Now, I used to think this was an act of compassion, that they were bringing him something because Jesus was thirsty and someone was overcome with compassion. So they run and they grab something to quench his thirst. But the more I read this, I think this is like cruel uh, curiosity. That really what people wanted was Jesus had just cried out. If you go to that next verse, Jesus had just cried out, my God, why, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they're wondering, maybe he's calling down Elijah. So someone goes to get some liquid to offer it to Jesus, hoping to keep him alive a little longer so that they could see if Elijah comes or not. This, I don't think this was an act of compassion. This was, let's try to keep him along a little, alive a little longer so he can suffer more humiliation. If you remember when the crowds were yelling to crucify Jesus, what they're yelling for is not to kill Jesus, it's to crucify Jesus. Because crucifixion was not just about someone dying, it was about someone suffering. It was like you deserve not just to die, you deserve to suffer a lot of pain before you die. 
So all this is Jesus being the suffering Messiah. And as you see all that that I just read, or you read about the crucifixion, and you see Jesus on a cross, what we're reminded of is that Jesus came to reveal the heart of God, the intentions of God, the actions of God. And when you see Jesus dying for the sin of the world, what you see is a picture of what God is like. That There's nothing God won't do to redeem and save his people. That God will go to great limits to reach us, to touch us, to provide a way, to give us access. Now, what put Jesus on the cross and the sign that was hung over the cross was king of the Jews. That he had declared to be king and this was something that could put you on a cross to die. Almost every claim Jesus made about himself, Caesar and then Caesar Augustus and then other Caesars claimed to do the same things. The word gospel wasn't a new word that Jesus invented. It was a word that Rome used, that the gospel was good news, but Jesus came to bring a different kind of good news. Caesar and Caesar Augustus are on the record saying things how they were the Lord of all. And Jesus comes claiming to be the Lord of all. So you have some of the same claims that Caesars are making, like being the son of God, are the same claims Jesus made too. But today, Caesar is dead, and he's in a tomb somewhere, and Jesus is alive because there's no tomb that could hold him. Caesar, Caesar made promises that he was never able to fulfill. Jesus has made promises that Jesus is still fulfilling today. Caesar made claims that weren't real. Jesus has made claims that were real then and they're still real today. He's alive and Jesus is exactly who Jesus claimed to be. And may we never water down the power of Christianity to say anything differently. Um, there was a, a story I read recently of uh, an Easter morning. It was in Bible class at a church, and, and the teacher, she was in front of her class, and it was, a little, it was elementary school. She's with little kids, and she said, does anyone here know the message of Easter? And one kid raised his hand, and he said, yeah, Easter is when all our family comes over for a meal, and mom makes a big turkey, and we sit around and we watch football. And the teacher said, I think you're, uh, you're thinking about Thanksgiving, not Easter, and a girl raised her hand and she said, Easter is when we walk down the steps and uh, the stairs in our house and, and there are presents under the tree and we sit around and we open presents. And the teacher said, uh, I think you're, you're thinking about Christmas, not Easter. And then a boy raised his hand and the boy said, Easter is when Jesus died and he was buried. And she said, yes, that's right, until he followed that up by saying, and when Jesus comes out of the grave, if he sees his shadow, it means there are six weeks of winter left. <laughs> Look, when it comes to Easter, we know this, but we've got to be reminded of it. Easter is more than the bunny and eggs and candy and new dresses, even though I love the new dresses and the new dress on my wife today. It's more than all of that stuff. It's more than just family getting together. This is where the whole story comes together, the story we've been saved into, the story we, we live from. This is, this is it. Aaron Nequest, in his, in his latest book, he says this, that we focus on perfecting the how, forget to submit to the why, and completely miss the whom. So I talked with our staff this week, and I've talked with other ministers and church leaders of how easy it is to get caught up in the events of Easter and totally miss the one who was over all of Easter. That we can get the events right and totally miss out on God. And it's not what Easter is about. So here's what Easter is about. Mark chapter 16. Verse 1 through 7. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, 
If you've noticed in the gospel before, it's usually women who are running to the tomb. It's the women who are declaring first that Jesus is alive. And it's Salome who, uh, who bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. And very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified, but he is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, but you go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him just, just as he told you. And they did it. Uh, something I've done the last few weeks is something I don't think I've thought about a lot in my life. Usually, I mean, the first time we read about Jesus being alive after he died is he's in a garden and he interacts with people, but rarely do we think about Jesus. Like, what was it like when he was inside of the tomb? A sealed tomb. A tomb that would have been dark inside with, with no airflow. What was it like for Jesus when he first came back from the dead? Because it wasn't like a coma and then he came back to life or he came to. It wasn't like he was asleep and then he just came to and he woke up like he was, he was dead. What was it like when he... Because when, when he woke up, when, 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 he, when he rose from the dead, when he came back to life, he's wrapped in linens. He's laying down. There's a cloth that has been placed over his face. And what was it like for Jesus to wake up? Because I know what it's like when some of you wake up and you are not fun to be around. And when Jesus did come back to life, he could have had revenge on his mind. He could have thought about the disciples who had betrayed him, so he's not going to invest in those anymore. He's going to go try to find some new ones. He could have thought about all the people who had just yelled to crucify him and what he can do to get, get them back. But instead, when Jesus came back to life, what he had on his mind was salvation and redemption and deliverance. I think when Jesus came back to life, right there in that dark tomb, what he realized is death did not have a hold on him. And because of that, death doesn't have a hold of God, on God's people either. What he had in mind is that Jesus just did. He just did what everyone in the world needed. He had, he had conquered the grave. He went to death and faced death and took on evil. And they put him in a tomb, but Jesus could not stay put because Jesus will never stay where people put Jesus. He still doesn't stay put. And this changes everything. There is no part of the world where the power of the resurrection does not want to insert itself. There's no part in the world. So this phrase, the tomb is empty, has become like this rallying cry for my family. For those of you who don't know me or my family much, uh, back in 2010, my sister passed away. After 18 days of battling uh, sepsis in a hospital and and my parents had been there almost the entire time. And as they were walking out, after my sister had died, my parents were walking out of the hospital and, and they just stopped in this hallway. And my mom squared up my dad and she's like, before we go out there, I need you to tell me right now, what is it we believe? Because everything I think I believe is, it feels like it has just been shattered. Remind me right now, what do we believe? And my dad just looked at her and, and they said it took a minute or so where they were there in silence. And my dad said, the tomb is empty. Those are the only four words that could flow out of him. The tomb is empty. There's so been this rallying cry, this anthem for my family. Now, since 2010, that when my mom wakes up with night terrors in the, during the night, uh, it's, it's what they will recite to each other in moments of depression and anxiety of the tomb. The tomb is empty. 
So I did something a little over a year ago. This has been such a rallying cry, an anthem for my family. I went permanent with this. So on my right arm, I have this anchor and I have going through it, the tomb is empty. Now, real quick, for all the teenagers and young adults in the room whose parents never want you to get a tattoo, I don't want you to think, hey, it's Easter Sunday. And now I'm going to go home and if my preacher can get one, then I need to be able to get one too. <clears throat> so, if you want to use me as ammunition, here's the deal. My tattoos came on to my body as a married man with my wife's permission and blessing. So, if you want to use me as ammunition, you got to wait until you're married and your spouse gives you a blessing, all right? Now, what I didn't think about when I got this anchor with the tomb is empty is that if you see this from a distance, from a few feet away... All you see is an anchor, and you don't really know what's in it. So I've had countless people say, sir, thank you so much for your service, because they think I'm in the Navy. (laughs) If it happens in a restaurant, and I get something free, then I'm going to ride it, okay? But it's an anchor with the the tomb is empty on it. I think that, that good ink needs to be good storytelling. So for those of you in here with a Kermit the Frog on a rib cage, like, I don't really know if that's telling much of a story. But for me to have the tomb is empty is this daily reminder when I'm brushing my teeth, when I'm putting deodorant on, when I'm flexing in the mirror. All right, I'm just joking. (laughs) But the tomb is empty is a foundation we stand on and it's what we live from. That this, this changes everything. Our tour guide on our trip to Israel was a guy named Jack. If you'll show this picture here to everyone. Jack was my parents' tour guide the first time they went to Israel a few years ago. So they're like, man, you've got to get Jack. Well, for anyone here who went on this trip with us, they could tell you that the first few days of our trip, Jack was not fun at all. He was knowledgeable. He knew what he was talking about, but he was, he was cold. He was, uh, it just seemed like his heart was hard. He was rude. He just wasn't fun to be around. Like our group is sometimes getting together thinking, how do we take out Jack? Not like take him out, take him out. But like, can we, can we trade somebody for Jack? Like this is not going well at all. But the closer we got to Jerusalem, Jack came to life. Now, maybe he came to life because just in Jerusalem, there's so many things there that, that will bring someone to life. I would like to think that the group from Sycamore View who was there continued to love Jack and extend grace to Jack that we started kind of winning him over. Maybe it was a little mixture of both. But one thing about Jack is usually when we would go aside and we would have our little worship times in places, Jack would excuse himself. He wasn't rude about it, but Jack was a devout Catholic. And Catholics, especially there, don't worship with Protestants. So he wasn't rude about it, but he wouldn't come into our worship settings. But the last day when we were at the garden tomb, Jack came into our worship setting. He sat right between my mom and dad. Years ago, Jack and my parents had connected over grief because Jack had a wife who five years ago died of ovarian cancer. And when we were there, Jack was suffering from some skin cancer. He was in some pain. So we sat right in between my parents at the garden tomb as we worshiped. And right before I was about to get up and try to preach, even though I was overwhelmed with emotion, Jack stood up. And I think most people, at least in my group, are like, oh man, what is, about, what is Jack about to do? Is he going to ruin the moment? What's Jack going to say? And Jack stood up, and Jack had been crying. So through tears, what he said was something like this. He said, I'm Catholic. And if some people 
who I know here saw me in this worship setting, I could be disfellowshipped. But he said, what I've experienced and the worship I'm experiencing right now, I just don't care. And he stayed throughout the worst of our, the rest of our time. The resurrection has the power to change everything. So let me close by introducing you to maybe someone you've never known. But Joseph of Arimathea is this guy who shows up in all four, all four gospels. And you probably know a little about him. But for months I've been waiting just to end the Easter sermon with Joseph of Arimathea. So let me just, all four gospel writers write about him. And, and maybe you know this, maybe you don't. But the four gospel writers don't agree on much. Like it's not that they disagree. It's just they rarely tell the same exact story. Only two tell a story of the birth. All four, the only miracle all four talk about in the, in the ministry of Jesus is Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now, all four talk about the death and they talk about the resurrection. But there's not much that you see in all four of them. All four of them talk about Joseph of Arimathea. So when Matthew talks about him in Matthew 27, 57, what he says is, as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. So from Matthew, you get he's a rich man. And Joseph also has become a disciple of Jesus. Now, in Luke 23, what he tells you is this. There was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man. So this is someone with some influence and some power who had not consented to their decision and action. So either he wasn't there when they voted to take out Jesus or he was there and he refused to vote to take him out. So he came from the Judean town of Arimathea and he himself was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. He was anxiously awaiting for the Messiah. Now, John tells you this in John 19. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away. Now, John lets you in on this. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, Nick at night, back in John 3. The man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. So Nicodemus is working with Joseph. Now, in Mark 15, here's what Mark tells you. And here's how the story goes. It was preparation day. That means before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, Pilate asked if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock. And then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Now, Jesus died at the ninth hour. And around the twelfth hour is when Sabbath began. So you had a three, maybe four hour block of time where all of this had to go down before the Sabbath started. So, so in that time, Joseph is able to buy linens, plead before Pilate for his body, bury him, so that the Sabbath could begin. Now, whenever someone was crucified on a cross, usually they would leave them there to rot and die, to be eaten by birds and things like that. It was a spectacle. 
But sometimes, especially before the, before the Passover, someone was crucified, they would try to take the bodies down because all these Jews were coming into the city for Passover and for Sabbath and for this celebration. Now, usually families could go and try to plead for the bodies. But it was up to the governor, whoever was over the land, in this case, Pilate, who could release the body to someone. Maybe the family of Jesus went and asked for his body. There's a good chance they didn't. They were such in a state of shock. But Joseph of Arimathea did. And I don't know what it looked like for him to go boldly before Pilate to ask for the body. But he went boldly. And have you ever thought about all that would have gone into taking someone, a grown man, down from a cross, carrying that body, even though John, the, the gospel writer John tells you that the garden, the tomb wasn't too far from where he was crucified. But even taking a grown man down from a cross, wrapping that body, placing that body in a tomb, it's an act of faith that he did this. Now, the Apostles' Creed lets you know in the Apostles' Creed that there's one line in there. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and he was buried. But being buried was a big part of this, this whole prophecy of Jesus. He, he did, wasn't just died, and then he came back to life right there on the cross. He was, he was buried. For Joseph to do this, he had to risk a few things. And this should mean something to us too as we live out the power of the resurrection. For Joseph to do this, one, he had to risk his own reputation. That everything he had worked for in his life, he may not be able to continue to do it. Joseph also risked becoming unclean on the Sabbath. Because if you touch a corpse, if you touch a dead body, you're, you're unclean. And the power of the resurrection sends us into places in the world that may not be clean or thought of as safe. Yet, as people clothed in the power of God, filled with the power of the Spirit, there's no place that we cannot go to inject Jesus into. And thirdly, by doing this, Joseph is going public with his faith. It's not a secret anymore. It's not something he's keeping, keeping to himself for him to do this is letting all of his other members of the council know and other people know that this thing about being a disciple of Jesus is not something he's just keeping to himself anymore. He's going public with it. Now, Joseph, I don't think he knew that the role he was playing in placing Jesus in a tomb and then he's expecting Jesus to come back to life, but he ends up playing this, this really important role of bearing the body of Jesus and that body coming back to life. But I think what all four gospel writers are writing in a way for us to know that sometimes you play a role in placing something in a tomb and then we trust together that it is God and only God who can bring some things to life. Some of you are holding way too tightly on things that you want to come to life, but you're controlling it, you're hovering over it, over it too much and not trusting that God is the only one who can bring it back to life. This doesn't mean there's not actions you take, but some of you have a marriage right now that you need a place in a tomb. Not for it to die, but to trust that God is the one who can resurrect this and bring it back to life. Some of you are holding on to some emotions that are not doing you any good, and you need to place it in a tomb and trust God is the one who can bring this back to life. Some of you are hovering over your kids and trying to control them in a way because they are lost and they're losing their way, and you need to place them and trust that God and only God can bring them back to life. And some of you have never made a commitment to surrender your life to Jesus and to be baptized into Christ because you cannot save yourself, 
It is not by merit that we are saved. It is through the blood of Jesus. And what you need to do is trust your life and to be buried with Christ, trusting that God is and he's the only one who can bring you back to life. I want to ask the elders and leaders, the prayer leaders, if you will go around the room today to receive people. If this is a day that you've never surrendered or committed your life to Christ, I want to invite you to find one of these people in this room or maybe you need to find one of us throughout this week. But maybe this is the day that sets you on a journey to start thinking about what it means for you to be a person of faith and to live out your faith. If there's a prayer, we could pray for any of you. We surround this room with people who are here to receive you. We have people, elders up front to receive you. Let's stand together and let's declare a couple of these songs.